in the full swing of holiday season. It's supposed to be a time of connectedness with our families and loved ones, but how connected are we right now? The experts say the country's ongoing mental health crisis deserves more attention and understanding. For some people, the increased expectations that we should be happy and living a hallmark life with a loving multi-generational extended family, presumably with fireplace and uh, nice gifts, <laughs> uh, that kind of increased expectation is stressful. Our guest is Dr. Ken Duckworth, the Chief Medical Officer for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building better lives for the millions of Americans who are affected by mental illness. If you know that you get depressed in the wintertime, might be a bad time to try to change your job or to end a relationship. You might want to consider not doing those things when you know you're at your most vulnerable. That would just be an example of how communication around mental health, being open to it, can help people. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, Dr. Duckworth, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. You know, I think everybody knows the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and we Hope that's true for everyone. Yet the American Psychological Association survey showed that people in their mid-30s to mid-40s reported the biggest increase in mental health illness out of all of the groups. And nearly half of them reported that they experienced issues this year. Anxiety and depression were top conditions that people self-reported. I'm wondering, do the holidays worsen mental health issues? For some people, the increased expectations that we should be happy and living a hallmark life with a loving multi-generational extended family, presumably with fireplace and uh, nice gifts, <laughs> uh, that kind of increased expectation is stressful. Yeah. Because a lot of us, our lives look a bit different than that. And uh, some people have lost their elders. They're not at the table. Some people have suffered other life events like divorce or you know, challenges in college or work. And so I would say real life doesn't really match up to Hollywood. That should not be a surprise. But I think the holidays do, for many of us, have the risk of increasing our expectations for a connected, loving life. And uh, I think if you can bear in mind that this is a desire to sell trucks or whatever it might be, you know, mm -hmm. The holidays are an opportunity to see what you can make the best of, is my experience. Well, Dr. Duckworth, you've written a very insightful uh, book called You Are Not Alone. Uh, and certainly the holidays are a time, certainly for many of us, seeing uh, parents and kids uh, in our extended family in person again and with COVID, uh, maybe after long absences. So it makes it a good time to check in on how everyone's doing, both mentally and physically. You write about a technique called motivational interviewing, well known to uh, clinical folks, but I think you're suggesting that it might work and be useful as we're sort of taking stock of how of our loved ones doing. Tell us about yeah. it. So, you know, the book is based on real people that shared what they learned in their lives. And one of the people that I interviewed was the man who invented motivational interviewing. Huh. So one strategy is to meet a person and say, Ken, you look depressed, you need help. Most people respond to that by saying, thank you, no, thank you, I'm good. 
So Bill Miller describes this as the writing reflex. It's as if we all have a committee that has some ambivalence within us. You push on one side of the boat, the other side of the boat's going to come back. What Dr. Miller said, and this says technique has been studied in over 200 randomized controlled trials, that if you actually listen to a person and find common ground on what they want, it takes more work and it's harder than telling a person what to do. So if you listen to them and they're struggling with their sleep or they're feeling lonely, focus on that. So if you think of it as these Venn diagrams, focus on the areas of overlap, things that you see that they see. People don't tend to like being diagnosed, even by a psychiatrist, right? And so just be gentle with that kind of assertion. And uh, motivational interviewing is about listening to people and finding common ground to help them go where they would like to go. But it's not a simple, uh, you know, quick fix. And if you say to somebody, I think you're depressed and you need help, and they say, yes, thank you, that's unusual. So it doesn't, you don't have to do motivational interview because there's a small percentage of people that will say, you know, thank you, Ken. I appreciate your feedback. So you have to know a little bit about your relationship. Uh, but I think motivational interviewing, these courses that when you go to clinical meetings, there'll be 500 people in the room trying to learn more about how to get to yes with people, not bringing your own answers, but rather asking more questions and building upon the strength of your relationship to get where you want to go. I, I really like that, Margaret. We often talk about it just in dealing with other organizations, how do we find the seam of opportunity where we can find common ground with somebody? So finding it with uh, uh, other human beings really makes a lot of sense. I do want to get back to that APA poll that we mentioned earlier, which found people between 18 and 34 had the highest rate of mental illness. And half of all people in this age group reported a mental health issue. I'm wondering, from your professional vantage point, what's the best guidance for people dealing with issues at such a relatively young age? Uh, I know you write about Wellness Recovery Action Plan, and that sounds very powerful. Yeah, a couple things about that. First is to be gentle with yourself. Uh, you know, the generation that had to do schooling through COVID, Zoom school, that mm. generation lost a lot of opportunity. So I'm now talking about the youngest part of the 18 to 34 yeah. uh, group, Mark. You're supposed to be out in the world trying things, trying out for sports, being in the theater group, asking someone out, getting rejected, having successes. You're experimenting with the world, right? So this is one of the reasons I think a lot of people in their 50s who have solved most of these developmental challenges what you're gonna do professionally, who you're gonna love, what kind of life you're gonna design for yourself. The people in their 16 to 25 years, right, are really trying to sort that. And I think the lack of opportunities to experiment in the world cuts directly into that demographic, you know, developmental need to try things out in the world. And so, of course, parents who are, uh, you know, trying to do Zoom school, uh, for their elementary school kids, they deserve a special spot in heaven yes. because I don't know how you can sustain attention. And I've talked to people in education who said the kids feel that they have lost some of their both social skills and some of their um, capacity for attention span. Multiple educator uh, people have told me this, whether in elementary school or in graduate school. So I also think this generation is more willing to acknowledge mental health 
I don't think it's as much of a secret as it is for those of us with a few gray hairs. I think it's more accepted. It's more uh, integrated into a parlance of this is part of life. So I think it's both things. I think it's additional challenges. And I think the economy hasn't been easy to buy a house. This is something people like to do at the end of their 20s if they're lucky, right, and early 30s. It hasn't been easy to buy a house, for example, to pick one economic metric. And I think that uh, people are also more willing to acknowledge anxiety and depression. So the rise we've seen is anxiety and depression. We haven't really seen much higher rates of any other conditions. More people self-report trauma. And some people in some of these surveys have shown a more of a relapse in the substance abuse space. Well, it certainly has been a difficult uh, several years, and mental illness was with us before COVID, during COVID, after COVID. But maybe there's a greater tendency uh, for families to reach out and try and uh, get help for themselves and the person with the mental illness. And I wonder um, if you could share with us, why is it helpful for the family member to get involved with NAMI? Is there a local chapter? What do uh, participants get out of the experience? Um, how do they you know, come, come to grips with what some people still think of as stigma and shame of a family member who's coping with mental illness? A great question, Margaret. You know, one of the reasons I called NAMI's first book, You Are Not Alone, people want to feel that they're part of something. So when this happens in your life, you have a child who develops bipolar disorder with psychotic features, for example, you can feel very alone and may even blame yourself. Once you join 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 other people who are just doing their best to make sense of what the uh, science says, what the best techniques are for communication, I think it really helps people to not be alone. And when in this book, I interviewed a number of people who found it was actually helpful to run those groups to help other people, to make purpose of their pain. And so, you know, NAMI is a great organization. All these programs are free. They're all over the country. There's just under 700 affiliates. So wherever you are, there is a NAMI group that provides free support, free education, and is advocating for better services. Because if any of you have tried to get help in the mental health system, we have a lot of work to do. So the local NAMIs and the state NAMIs fight for better services. You know, I just watched your new ad campaign, which I really love, and it's so powerful. I wonder if you know that we can get help. I wonder why we waited so long. I'm not wondering anymore. Love your mind. Let's see how far we can go. The campaign's called Love Your Mind, and we understand NAMI is uh, a campaign resource. It, it says that people should be more open, accepting, and proactive uh, when it comes to taking care of their mental health. I'm wondering what does proactive mean? Uh, if someone knows they get depressed around holidays, is there something they can do before sadness immobilizes them? Well, Mark, it's a great question as well. Pattern recognition is a critical thing, but if you can't talk about it in your family system, in your relationships, or to yourself, your ability to do pattern recognition is going to be impaired. My dad had very bad bipolar disorder. I became a psychiatrist to help him. I was not a STEM whiz, right? I went to the uh, medical schools that did not require calculus. There were 11 of them in America, and I got into <laughs> nine of them. I just wanted to help my dad and make sense of all this. So to me, our inability to communicate as a family 
meant that we couldn't do the kind of pattern recognition and problem solving that is happening now in, in households all across America, not every household, but to understand your own pattern. So my dad would get manic in the summertime. It would have been very advantageous for us as a family to take uh, the spring uh, and say, hey, wait a second, this would not be a good time to change things. This would be a good time to make sure he's seeing his doctor. We might want to get his medication level checked. Can we do that with him, not to him, collaborative? Same thing for uh, seasonal depression. A lot of people know about themselves that there are certain periods of time that they have troubles with depression, particularly true in northern latitudes with seasonal affective disorder. Uh, people who you know live in Key West are less likely to have seasonal affective disorder than people who live in Bangor, Maine. But learn from your prior experience, whether it's lights. There's a very special kind of lights. This is not turning your lights on in your kitchen whether it's psychotherapy, medication, lights, whatever it is, um, learn from your prior experiences of the seasonality of your vulnerabilities, particularly in the mood disorder space. There does seem to be seasonality as a real phenomena. The ability to talk about it, back to Margaret's point, communicate about it, problem solve about it, helps with pattern recognition and helps you get ahead of things. So if you know that you get depressed in the wintertime, might be a bad time to try to change your job or to end a relationship. You might want to consider not doing those things when you know you're at your most vulnerable. That would just be an example of how communication around mental health, being open to it, can help people. Well, thank you uh, so much, Dr. Duckworth, for sharing your personal story uh, with your father, your own family member. Uh, and I wonder if I can uh, maybe jump off that to think about where people get most of their health care in primary care to begin with. How do you think the primary care system in the United States is doing in terms of all the focus on screening and screening for depression and anxiety? I'm not sure we do screening beyond that, but certainly substance use disorder. Whenever I see a pediatrician or a primary care doc, a family doc, I meet them at a party, I thank them for all they're doing. Primary care is one of the backbones of the American mental health system. Because we don't really have a coherent, organized system, people do tend to trust their doctors if they have one. Trust Everybody trusts their pediatricians. Pediatricians are literally the nicest people in medicine. It's universally true. It happens every single year. The nicest people go into pediatrics. <laughs> so if your child is having behavioral vulnerabilities, or showing uh, things that you know are concerning you. Most pediatricians consider this part of their portfolio, not psychotherapy. They're not allowed to do psychotherapy, but they can recognize, and some practices have referrals. Well, here's a person that, that works with kids who have panic disorder. Here's a practice that works with kids who need organizational tutoring, and you might wanna consider getting tested through a neuropsychologist. So I happen to love uh, primary care doctors, pediatricians. We ask an awful lot of them. So if you know a primary care doctor or a pediatrician, thank them for what they're doing. Because America tends to value specialists in terms of how we pay for things, right? Uh, and primary care and pediatricians are not at the top of the pay scale. They're not driving BMWs. So uh, it's just important to recognize that mental health is a big part of their job because people feel safe with them. They know them, they have relationships with them. And um, you talk to them, they'd say a third to half to more of their job is related to mental health, directly related to mental health. 
Well, you know, I want to make two points here. One, uh, we're a big advocate of promoting uh, primary care and access to primary care because not everybody has access to primary care. And so the community health center movement around the country is very committed to that, but also a different model of delivery, an integrated model where next to the pediatrician is a behavioral health specialist, a, a licensed clinical social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, really this team-based care because the pediatrician alone can't do it. We need more integrated uh, uh, delivery teams, uh, but I, we couldn't agree with you more uh, special praise to all those primary care providers. But I want to touch on public policy issues. And we know NAMI has yeah. long fought uh, for reality. And again, back to the mental health, the mental health care and also physical care. And Margaret, we've had a number of uh, leaders in the mental health world on advocating for this parity. And it's been a long, hard fought. NAMI has certainly been a, a leader in this area as well. The Biden administration proposed rules to strengthen enforcement of mental health parity laws that would improve access to care. Not surprising, the insurance industry is really pushing back and executives have said the proposed rules are, quote, so burdensome that many of our members will have no other choice but to rethink the type and level of their plans, coverage of mental health benefits. I'm wondering if you'd respond to that. Mental health is part of health. It's just that simple. And we have yet to have a cardiologist who doesn't accept insurance because the payments are too low. No cardiologist is charging $28,000 for a private pay bypass. It's never happened. So the medical field participates in a payment structure because the payments are worthwhile. The mental health field has been historically underfunded and discriminated against. So NAMI's very in favor of the idea of the Biden's proposal to promote another level, kind of version 2.0 of mental health parity. Uh, my colleague, Rochelle Keyes from NAMI, was on the stage with President Biden uh, as an example of someone who in her family had run into these problems. <clears throat> this is a great example of how NAMI engages in sort of public policy discussions. Well, I wonder if we could uh, get your opinion on, on something else, Dr. Duckworth. Uh, it's been uh, just a little over a year, I think, since 988, uh, the National Suicide and Crisis uh, Lifeline uh, was opened. Uh, the Pew Charitable Trust has raised some challenges that the service still faces, including workforce shortages, which, of course, are everywhere, uh, language access issues, and also what happens next, the access to ongoing care. We'd really welcome your thought on the need uh, for this uh, 988 line and what you think of its effectiveness or success in this first year and opportunities for improvement. The basic idea of 988, which NAMI helped to lead, our policy team, I, Ken, was writing the book. I get no credit for the 988 work. The policy team led a whole uh, collection of people who thought calling 911 for mental health crises promotes better, uh, worse outcomes per square inch. That is to say, a police response is rarely required for a mental health crisis. And the idea was to take that very long number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and it turned it into a three-digit number. So I would say there's a couple dimensions to this. Most of the calls are answered quickly. There's a very low call rate. They added Spanish language uh, one year later. 
and they just added American Sign Language uh, for the deaf and hard of hearing. That has done a good job of reducing the number of calls that end up going to police departments. So that's only one piece of the puzzle. I think what the Pew uh, Trust is talking about is the idea of mobile crisis teams. And that's not something you can pay 20 cents on your Verizon bill, right? 988 is funded right across the country by a contribution like 911 is by people on their uh, bills and by federal money. Local services, like when you call 988 and you need someone to come to your house and assess you, that's going to vary greatly on your local resources. Now we're back to NAMI and advocacy. So if you live in Tucson, Arizona, Eugene, Oregon, Denver, uh, Colorado, there are exceptionally good cri mobile crisis teams that are culturally thoughtful, have peers. The state of Georgia, every mobile crisis team has a person with a mental health condition travel along so that the compassionate experience of being with someone but that's not universal. And that's because our patchwork mental health system is largely state funded. So this is another advocacy dimension. We have to work the problem so that more people can have the services that they have in Georgia, that they have in Arizona, that they have in Colorado. Um, so to me, this is an endeavor that is well worth doing. And part one has been a success. We need a part two. You know, I want to uh, pull the thread a little more on on 988, and I think it's been identified there's a shortage of mental health providers in the country. I'm wondering if you can give some dimension to the problems uh, in terms of uh, developing enough or cultivating enough or educating enough uh, mental health providers uh, who are so important. It's kind of interesting. You were talking earlier that mental health really uh, part of the pandemic. One of the maybe silver linings is that people starting to access mental health more. And I think people a little like, we also experienced the word public health, uh, people got into focus during the pandemic. Yes. What's your prescription uh, as a clinician for how we might uh, develop, uh, cultivate a larger workforce in this area? Because it's pretty yeah, clear. I think we need major student loan relief if you choose a career in mental health. And part of the book, You Are Not Alone, it's the idea that peers also have something to offer. So essentially, when mental health became a we thing through the pandemic instead of a you thing or a they thing, more people wanted to access mental health. So the demand went up 5x, 3x. Supply is unchanged. So I'm not an economist, right? But you see the supply-demand mismatch and access problems that immediately followed. So to me, I have two daughters in medical school. Psychiatry is cool now. It's interesting. When I went into psychiatry, it was not cool, right? <laughs> Cardiology was cool. And both of my daughters uh, recognize that psychiatry is cool. I can't promise either of them are going to go into psychiatry. They have their own minds and their own choices. But it's interesting to me, this is now seen as a worthwhile destination. But that doesn't mean we're developing hundreds of new spots for psychiatrists. Same for psychologists, same for social workers. So mental health now has cachet. It's considered interesting and compelling and important. So we've crossed that hurdle. But to me, we have to create more new residency slots, more psychology internships. They're extremely competitive to get a psychology internship. You can get 300 people applying for one spot. But also, I think looking at what Georgia did, 
hire peers. They don't replace clinicians. But a person who's lived with something, let's take severe depression, right, and has gone through a training to be a certified peer specialist can augment the workforce, right, can make the professional workforce go farther because now you have somebody who's traveled in those waters along with you. So that's one of my prescriptions is that more states should be like Georgia to create an alternative additional set of players on the field. Uh, but psychiatry is cool now and that's hopeful, right? So we're not gonna have empty residency spots. We're not gonna have them anymore. We had them when I was young, like not every position would fill. And I'd be like, psychiatry is the most interesting thing going, but almost no one agreed with me back in the day. <laughs> Well, Dr. Duckworth, we could do an entire part two of the show with our thoughts on workforce training and integrating oh my, that's a big the, one, yeah. <laughs> into the national community health center system the way yes. Ferris has done it. But I'm gonna, we need another uh, show for that. I would like uh, to maybe give you a chance to share your thoughts uh, with our audience about any uh, latest research about what still seems to be a bit of an ongoing debate about uh, talk therapy, psychotherapy alone versus medication. Uh, treatment? Is it still a combination of the two that's best or any, anything new from the research in this area? The most important thing is to respect people's wishes. Some people don't like meds. Psychotherapy has been shown to be effective for most mental health conditions, particularly if you have a relationship with someone, like if you have a trusting relationship or you use a technique that is well validated for your condition. Some people don't have time for psychotherapy. Medications are effective for most conditions most of the time, even though we don't understand how they work. You have to accept that, must accept. One of the interesting things in research is now looking at the potential for um, a psychedelic compound called MDMA, which is in fast track uh, for phase three. It's guided psychotherapy for PTSD. And this, so this is the idea of taking a psychedelic with a person who's trained in psychotherapy together so this is the first FDA uh, effort to integrate the two. But if you were to ask me, um, I have a severe depression, How? what's the best way to get better? The best way is to probably do both, psychotherapy and medications. I think there's a pretty good literature, and that literature has been around for a long time. Myrna Weissman came out with a study in the 80s that showed that. That was well before the SSRIs were developed, before TMS, before ketamine, before all of it. So I think there's a psychological and a biological dimension to many mental health conditions. And the idea of when you can access both, right, back to access, uh, that's probably the most efficient strategy. Well, that's so exciting. I know Dan Bryan and our own staff has been working on the ketamine issue. And obviously we're focused on the policy side of, of reimbursement of how that works to make sure that Medicaid allows for this to happen, but we know the Veterans Administration has played a key role in this area. We're very excited about it. I want to get back to seasonal disorders. Uh, you, uh, I think the NIH has ca came out and identified that light therapy may be uh, an effective intervention. Any additional thoughts that you want? I know you touched on that earlier, but uh, anything in the literature that you want to point our, our listeners to? For seasonal affective disorder, if you have resources, uh, don't go uh, in this, away in the summer. Go away when you're at most risk of being vulnerable, right? So this is the time to go to Florida, you know, when the days are shortest. Also, I would say there's pretty good evidence 
that if you have a bipolar vulnerability, you have to also be careful with light therapy as you would with antidepressants. I think that's been shown in the literature. And even if you live in Boston and you only get a few sunny days a year in the dead of winter, get out in the sun, right? So it's sunny right now, right? I'm going to go for a walk with my dog right after this conversation. I don't particularly have a vulnerability in this space. I have other vulnerabilities because I'm a human. But getting light into our little pineal glands is a good idea, even though it's weak and hard to find in Boston. Uh, I would encourage people to access light. If you have the resources to go south, do it in the dead of winter when you've recognized your own patterns, right? Uh, so don't take summer vacations. If you have seasonal affective disorder and you live in the north, Take winter vacations. And and don't go to Iceland. Stay, go, go south. <laughs> well, Iceland, you know, again, you know, uh, everybody to their own, to their own thing. But, yeah. uh, you know, one of my daughters uh, lives in Spain and uh, it's pretty sunny over there. I got to tell you. <laughs> That's great. And certainly going for a walk in the sun sounds like good advice uh, at any time. But Dr. Duckworth, I, I wonder if I can ask you uh about co-occurring disorders, uh, mental illness and substance use yes. uh, disorder, and and maybe particularly a little bit about alcohol. You know, we're very uh, we we read that the data says young people are drinking less alcohol. That would yes. be good news. Um, but we also look on uh, you know the older spectrum and see those uh, midlife uh, deaths of despair, in which alcohol plays a very right prominent part. What what does NAMI, uh, NAMI, excuse me, what does NAMI uh, offer to people who are dealing with co-occurring disorders? And what are your thoughts on most effective? I would say this is an area that I wanted NAMI to grow more in. And that's why in our first book, You Are Not Alone, I interviewed people who had both mental health and addiction vulnerabilities. And what they told me is something that I have seen is these are two cultures that exist on kind of different tracks. And if you think about it, the addiction community grew up around peer support, AA, right? Not a professional concept, which is why treatments for things like opiate disorders, which are medical, have been harder to integrate. Mental health starts with a professional model, you know, Freud, MDs, right? Therapists, research. And the idea of integrating peers has been a bigger challenge on the mental health space. So I've been contacted by many people just because of one little chapter in our book, because I actually shown some light on the issue. So NAMI likes the work of people like Ken Minkoff, who are working at the policy level to have things like screening for depression in addiction programs, screening for substance use in psychiatric services. The idea that on the policy level to integrate these two cultures, because they are two cultures and they don't necessarily think alike. Uh, so it's an ongoing challenge. But one of the reasons I wanted that to be a prominent part of NAMI's first book is the joy of being the author is you get to decide what you're going to cover. Mm -hmm. And I knew that co-occurring disorders matter to people. Many of the bad outcomes come with co-occurring disorders, opiates and bipolar disorder, alcoholism and depression, uh, schizophrenia and um, other kinds of compounds. This is what you see in the real world. And many of those people have the highest risk. So I didn't want to ignore that. Nami grew up with moms who were blamed for their children's schizophrenia. And that's kind of still the core right. educational advocacy angle. But Nami has expanded to include other mental health conditions and to integrate things like addiction and trauma into our thinking. 
Sorry, that's my dog who knows we're going for a walk. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Duckworth, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the book you wrote, uh, for your podcast, and for NAMI's leadership. And thanks to our audience. Be sure to go to uh, online at chcradio.com to sign up for our email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Thank you again. Enjoy that walk with your dog. Thank you for having me, everyone. All Thank right, you, take Dr. Care. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.